0: Hello, I'm Michael Watson, joined by Sarah Lee, and this is the Influence Watch Podcast. As some follow the siren song of statism promoted by activist groups funded by liberal foundations and push for stronger and more coercive labor unions, the National Right to Work Foundation stands athwart, defending the right of all workers to choose whether union representation is right for them or not. Joining us to discuss the state of big labor and the right, as well as other labor-related issues, is National Right to Work Foundation Vice President Patrick Simmons. Uh, Patrick, could you tell us a little bit about your background and what you do for National Right to Work? Sure, Mike, great to be with you. Um,
1: Yeah, so I've been at the National Right to Work Foundation for uh, going on uh, about 17 years now, um, and uh, that just has uh, mostly been on our, our media side, talking about the issue of uh, forced unionism and everything that the foundation does to oppose it. Um, for those don't, who don't know, we offer free legal aid to workers. Um, our team of uh, 19 staff attorneys handles around 200 or more cases every year, um, and they're uh, brought exclusively for
0: workers. So we're not... Um, um, am, am, I, am I correct in giving you guys credit for the Janice v. Ask me decision? Yeah,
1: Janice was our 18th uh, trip to the U.S. Supreme Court, um, and uh, our current legal director, uh, Bill Messenger, argued that case uh, at the Supreme Court.
0: So that certainly was a, was a landmark victory for us. So... Last week, I think it was last week, right? The House of Representatives held a hearing on some union-related matters. Uh, and can you tell us a bit about what uh, what was at the hearing, uh, what was discussed and any role that uh, you guys had in Sure. It? So the um, House subcommittee,
1: uh, HELP subcommittee, uh, held a hearing focused on the National Right to Work Act, um, which is a simple piece of federal legislation. It repeals the parts of federal law that authorize forced union dues. Um, So that's where in states without uh, state right to work laws, a worker can be fired solely for not financially supporting a union. Um, And so that was the subject. Uh, Foundation president, uh, Mark Mix, who's also the president of the National Right to Work Committee testified, um, along with two workers who have both been recipients of foundation legal aid, and who've had their rights violated in
0: forced due situations in forced due states. So, one of the things that I think, because there's been some talk, you know, especially since 2016, you know, on the right, that we need to reach out to workers. And, of course, the shortest distance that politicians think to get to workers is to go through labor unions. And I think that some of those people may have forgotten why we had to work so hard over 80 years to... Reduce and continue to work to reduce the amount of coercion and organized labor. So, what was what were some of those violations that your the workers uh, that you guys have been working with experienced? Sure.
1: Um, so, one of the cases uh, was for a nurse uh, uh, whose name is Jeanette Geary. Um, she worked in Rhode Island, and uh, Foundation attorneys represented her for twelve years in her case, um, and the issue there was. What, Because she was in Rhode Island, which doesn't have a right to work law, um, what portion of the dues she could be forced to pay under threat of termination versus which ones they
0: couldn't force her to pay. Right, because there's a a Supreme Court case that, if I recall correctly, you guys won long, long ago, before I was born, called Communication Workers v. Beck. Yeah, 1988,
1: um, the Beck decision, and it tries to break down this line between uh, the so-called chargeable part of forced dues, which at least theoretically... um, are about contract um, bargaining and then also enforcing the contract uh, versus all the other things that, that uh, union officials do with
0: dues money. Most famously,
1: obviously political activity is a big part of that Um, lobbying um, falls under that umbrella, but also certain members only activities, um, you know, the annual potluck, whatever at the union hall um, that's only for members And so there's this issue of what they can and can't charge for. And in Jeanette Geary's case, um, when she finally got learned about her Beck rights, started to try to enforce them, she found that the the union there was forcing her to pay for lobbying the state legislatures of both Rhode Island and Vermont. Um, It's a clear-cut violation of Beck, but that doesn't mean that enforcing her Beck rights was easy. Uh, So she started with a National Labor Relations Board Unfor labor practice charge against the union. Um, that took years for a whole host of reasons, including an unconstitutional um, recess appointments made by the Obama administration that delayed it. Um, she had to go to the DC circuit court of appeals to ask for a writ of mandamus to force the labor board to issue a ruling in her case. Um, they finally, finally did that. Um, then the union appealed it to the first circuit court of appeals. Um, our attorneys argued there and she finally won. Um, but I think, you know, what's important for this and why this is such a good story when you're talking about the National Right to Work Act and the need for right to work protections, is under right to work, it's very simple. You you can't charge anything. So you don't have to, you don't face these legal games that union officials play where they try to claim, oh, you know, 85%, no, 90% of dues or, you know, and then you go in and you're supposed to get an independent audit. But if you really dig into the way the Beck system works. Um, an independent audit is not really that independent. It's basically based on the union provided numbers and the ability for any individual um, worker to challenge that audit is almost impossible. Um, and so you really have the, you know, uh, the foxes guarding the hen house, uh, union officials uh, with this massive influence over what they get to force workers to pay or not pay. And obviously they have a huge incentive to drive up um, that and, and force workers to pay as much as possible, um, in
0: part because if, you know, if that difference between... Uh, right, right. If the dif- if the difference is negligible, then yeah, yeah. people are going to default uh, you know, even more. going can
1: go, go through a multi-year, decade-long, in this case, legal process over 5% of dues. They know that, you know, now... The National Right to Work Foundation might help a worker with that because we see the principle and the precedent that it can set and, and how it can advance the ball for, for other workers. But in terms of an individual worker, I mean, they just are never going to have the resources to be able to fight that battle on their own. Um, and union officials know that and they take advantage of that. Um, and they also take advantage of all the, the pressure tactics and, and the fact that this is a union that has monopoly control over a worker's terms and conditions of employment. And so the idea of going to the person who... Uh,
0: yeah, that's, let's, let's dwell on that for about five seconds, because where the union guy comes in and the, he says, well, the, the people who aren't members need to pay anyway because they're free riding. And well, no, the union actually is getting a perk in order for the federally established quote-unquote responsibility um, to represent not to represent, I'm making air quotes, non-members Uh, And that is monopoly power. And their compensation for these so-called free riders should be that monopoly power that the government is giving them rather than compelling the dissenting non-members who might think that they could do better on on their own, might uh, disagree with the union leadership on political matters, on social matters, Uh, Uh, might disagree with the union leadership on how the workplace should be administered. Um, And, you know, instead they have the monopoly power and that monopoly power is power. And that monopoly power is a benefit.
1: It's a huge benefit.
0: I mean, it's, it's literally a government enforced monopoly
1: uh, that strips individual workers of their right to contract and says this third party who you may completely oppose for every type of reason has the power to control your terms and conditions of employment. Um, and then of course, on top of that, they get to decide whether grievances go forward. So, I mean, one of the things Jeanette Geary said talked about is that she was threatened by union supporters and union agents in her workplace. And they said, Well, look, if you need a you need a union grievance, you're not gonna be able to get it. And um, she was called names, someone threatened to key your car. I mean, all sorts of stuff. But yeah, I mean, generally, federal law is about you know, there's all sorts of antitrust law that's supposed to be about stopping monopolies. And yet when it comes to labor, you've got government mandated and enforced monopolies uh, that work to the detriment of individual workers. Um, And one of the things, you know, union officials never want to talk about, but we know it's true. And when pressed on it in the right context, they'll admit it, is that many individual workers under a union contract are harmed by the very terms and conditions of that contract. Um, I mean, seniority rules, one of the Biggest and first things that, that unions usually ask for in a monopoly bargaining contract is a sort of first in, first out situation. So if you know if you need less workers, the business changes, uh, economic conditions change, and suddenly there have to be layoffs, the most junior people are the first ones with their heads on the chopping block. That doesn't mean that in forced due states, they're not forced to pay for that contract that then literally makes them the first ones to be fired. It doesn't matter how productive they are. Uh, maybe their work product is a lot better than people with more seniority, um, but they're the first ones harmed. And, and, you know, there's all sorts of other examples of this. Um, There's a lot in the public sector as well. I mean, you could talk about just, you know, positions of need. Maybe you've got, you know, uh, teachers unions that go, well, we, you know, we we want the pay scale to be based on the number of years you work. Well, that doesn't reflect the fact that it may be a lot more difficult to find, uh, you know, a high school physics teacher Mm -hmm than it might be to get someone who can, um, you know, uh, teach phys ed in, in elementary school. Um, right. You know, that's just a, a reality. And so a lot of people end up being harmed by this. And, and you go back to the Friedrichs
0: um, case at the U.S. Supreme Court, which is predecessor to Janus. Basically right. Made, right. This, was, this was basically the same question as Janus, but it was in between argument and decision. That yeah, that's so right. It, I, I remember right.
1: getting that news and knowing that that was very bad news for, for the Friedrichs case. Um, but yeah, so they ended up tying four, four. Um, and then the next, uh, the next time Janice, um, came up and did a full compliment, um, at that time in 2018. Um, but the, um, yeah, so the Friedrichs case, um, I I think, uh, you know, that's a good example of that. And in that case, Kamala Harris of all people, as the attorney general, then yeah, General of
0: California.
1: She filed a brief in which she admitted that yes, the union has the authority to push for economic conditions that harm some members of the bargaining unit. That's not an exact quote, but we've written about that and highlighted that. But but that's an admission that they they make and they know, and it's fundamentally true. When you have a one size fits all contract um, that people are forced under against their will, some of them are going to be um, strapped to the mast, uh, to use a, a term that I think. Um, Robert Reich, of all people, as the Secretary of Labor under the Clinton administration, talked about when it comes to monopoly bargaining. Um, so it's it's very much a top-down. Uh, we know what's best for you, even if it's not really best for yourself. Uh, um, approach that union bosses take um, in these monopoly contracts, and it, it very right, and it's and it's collective over you, yeah. Ultimately, It is. Um, And on top of it, sometimes it's not even about the bargaining unit. What's best for the bargaining unit? A lot of times it's what's best for union power. Um, We've seen unions, uh, you know, enter into agreements where they say, hey, we'll agree to uh, limitations on wages or benefits and and things that an employer might find valuable in this bargaining unit if you let us um, come in through card check through one of the other uh, facilities you have that isn't even unionized
0: yet. I mean, I mean, we see this with teachers unions all the time. Now that there have been some big advances on school choice, the union is in the state cap, you know, a lot of these come with, you know, as a as a sidecar are public school teacher raises and the union goes to the, you know, state legislature and goes to sixes and sevens to stop the school choice because they hate the school choice institutionally, even though, their members would get a raise as a sidecar to the bill.
1: Yeah, you see that. You see, um, speaking of Rebecca Friedrichs, I remember her telling the story about how during, um, you know, uh, sort of the recession in in, in 08 and 09, um, her school district was having to have to uh, lay off teachers. And she and a bunch of others in her workplace said, hey, you know, instead of getting the mandated raise, we could actually save these good teachers' jobs if we just took a little less for now sacrifice, like a lot of members of our community are, um, and they went to the union, um, officials in Sacramento and they said, Hey, can we do this? And they said, no, no, absolutely not. We're never going to grant those concessions. Don't worry. Um, I think, I think what she said is the union said, don't worry. We have, a, a, a class they can take on how to apply for unemployment insurance. That was the union's response to them being laid off, um, and, and their own teachers being laid off because of their own, uh, monopoly contract.
0: Sure. uh, Do you want to jump in? Yeah, I just
2: remember in college having to watch the movie Norma Ray. And this is all very different from (laughs) what that movie would have you believe about Mm -hmm. unionizing. Um, But I just wanted to talk a little bit about your hearing as well. I actually spoke to one of your witnesses. And I I think it's okay to say her name, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, Renilda Vargas. Yes, she was lovely. And Mm -hmm. and, um, she kind of told me that, uh, well, she did tell me that you know, her issue with the union, um, the fort sort of forced, uh, dues paying is that it's not that she had a problem with unions necessarily. She just thinks that choice, individual choice should, should be the, you know, should rule the day, um, which I thought was interesting. And the other thing that she said was, um, what was really strange to her, I think she was an attorney. And so she, you know, she was like, I can negotiate for myself. I don't need a union to negotiate for me. Um, but she also said that there that the union in question where she worked at a nonprofit was UAW. So I want to get yeah. into that a little bit um, because I think that that is a sign, and I am not the expert here on this. I'm learning this as I go. Um, that's a sign that the, the power of the union seems to be diminishing a little bit because you have these you know, unions that were uh, always associated with, by name, associated with, you know, auto workers branching out into these other areas. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Yeah. So she's a public defender um, at a nonprofit that, you know, represents um, people in, in court cases where they don't have the funds uh, to be able to represent themselves or to, to hire their own uh, representation. Um, and, and yeah, the UAW got in there and um, they Uh, We're able to unionize the workplace and suddenly um, they come to her and they say, you know, sign this union deduction card or we're going to we're going to block your uh, raise and we're going to go after you. And that's an illegal demand. Um, Forced dues because it's um, this is in Philadelphia, so Pennsylvania, not a right to work state are authorized, but uh, no worker anywhere under the National Labor Relations Act can be required to sign a dues deduction card. obviously the union wants that. They like to be able to automatically take the money out. People notice it less. Um, Just like the Fed. Yeah. Um, But, you you know, you have the right to pay monthly with a check. We have people who we've assisted and and tell them that's the way to do it. That's the the best way to kind of make sure that your BEC rights, um, to the extent you can protect them, are being protected. Um, So that was the situation. And uh, we filed that unfair labor practice charge. And even the Biden National Labor Relations Board found merit and when they find merit, you know that the union has definitely violated the law. Um, and so th- there was a settlement in her case. Um, but again, it, you know, it shouldn't have come to that. Those threats should never have been made. Um, but getting to the UAW, yeah, most people would be um, surprised to learn that the UAW is representing lawyers at a nonprofit
0: Um Harvard graduate students. Yeah, well, exactly right. Um, that's the
1: that's the dirty little secret of the UAW is that um, a significant portion, I think, something like thirty or forty percent, um, are not auto workers, um, and a lot of them are graduate students, um, adjunct professors, that type of thing. I think they I think they have some casinos. They de- yeah, they definitely have some casinos. We've we've assisted workers at uh, casinos in uh, New Jersey and, and I think Las Vegas. Do you Vegas think that's by well.
2: necessity? Are they um, having to branch out?
0: Yes. No, the the, the the answer is yes. The A lot of the old industrial unions, UAW being one of them, probably the most, uh, well, between them and the Teamsters, but they, UAW has probably taken the biggest hit over time. You know, the UAW back in the 60s, 70s when Walter Ruther was in charge, I think they got up over a million numbers, and they're down couple that they, they are down to a couple hundred yeah, I think, thousand. I think
1: 350 might be the right number, something something in that range. 30, yeah.
0: And obviously that means fewer dues. That means fewer, you know, uh, uh, fewer members that you can mobilize for political. And in the case of the UAW, as we saw, oh, I want to say it was end of last week when they're voting that, you know, there needs to be a ceasefire in Israel and Gaza, you know, to do your political ag- advocacy if you have, you know, 600 some odd thousand fewer members than you had 40 years ago, you know, that call doesn't, doesn't doesn't ring as loudly. Uh, even if, you know, even when you figure that of the couple hundred thousand that they have, uh, you know, not all of them are going to agree, uh, with the, the diktat from Sean Fain that, you know, now we support a ceasefire. Um, And the UAW has always been an extremely activist union. Uh, You know, sometimes that puts things in their credit. Walter Ruther spoke at the March on Washington with Martin Luther King. Good for him. Uh, Sometimes it isn't like right now. Uh, So, yeah, because they've had such a decline in their core industrial automaker membership, they've gone looking for casinos for grad students for government workers whatever they can find um, as long as it doesn't infringe on on the jurisdiction uh, of some other labor unit. yeah well that's I mean, that's right it's,
1: it's a monopoly and it's it's not just a monopoly in the workplace and at these companies but it's very much a cartel system where you know if there's a dispute between the SEIU
0: and the UAW over who's going to, um, you know. Well, I mean that's the the, the whole point of the AFL CIO as an institution. Ultimately, at its beginning, was to make sure that each union had its units to organize and didn't go messing with other units that other people were. Organizing.
1: Yeah, precisely.
0: Um, they, they, you know, they want to they want to be maximizing the number of workers who they control and who are forced to pay. In in, in, in unionist parlance, that's called rating you know, if I, if I'm a union and I go try to organize some other unionized people, that's called a rating. Yeah. Um,
1: but so if there's a dispute, you know, the AFLC may, the AFL CIO may, you know, lay down the line and, and sort of rule for one union or the other, sometimes they'll split the baby. And we, you know, I was going to say in Michigan, we saw that there were a group of uh, home healthcare workers and, and traditionally that had been the jurisdiction of the SEIU, but this is Michigan, which is where the UAW has a ton of influence. And so they created a joint, um, uh, I believe it was maybe it was ASME and and the UAW, but the UAW. I know, was in, I know has been involved in, in, in home now. healthcare workers there, um, and so yeah, you see that in the you know that. Fortunately, ended after the Harris v. Quinn uh, decision and um, state legislature there finally ended that scheme. But yeah, it's it's um, you know it's very much about union boss power, union boss control, um, and, and it never you know.
0: It's it's dividing it's dividing the territory. Yeah, and it's
1: not about what the actual workers want. It's it's you have an option, and that option is the union that the AFL CIO says is entitled to organize your workplace. Um, and that's, you know, very much part of how this cartel monopoly system um, works to the detriment of the individual workers who foundation.
2: So how is this working out? Uh, You know, the reason I mentioned the UAW is that, and I am interested in the unionization of the South or the attempts to. I know that you were quoted in a recent Politico article, Patrick, where you're basically, you know, acknowledging that the union's not popular in the South. There's a reason for that um, and that the union might want to look inside itself to figure out why that is, which I actually think plays into a lot of the work that Mike's been doing on this sort of embrace of uh, unions from the conservative side of the political aisle. But how does this play into the efforts to kind of unionize traditionally non-friendly union areas when you look at, I don't know, I think they're calling the, um, the, the Southeast the battery belt now because of electric vehicles and things like that. So how, does, how is is this going yeah. to help UAW gain new members? Are they going to still have to go to Waffle House or Starbucks or wherever they're going? I can't remember. I don't know the places that they've been.
1: Well, UAW just announced, oh, we're going to organize all these non-union automakers. Um, but that's always been their plan. They've never stopped trying to do that. The problem they consistently run into is that the workers don't actually want them. They lose. They lose. lose. <laughs> yeah, um, they lose. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, people talk about the big three automakers, but more right, more vehicles are made in the United States and right-to-work states um, from
0: transplant automakers than than the big three make. Um, and, and, and I mean, they've gone to Volkswagen. So Volkswagen's corporate structure is such that the German steelmakers union has a certain number of seats on the Volkswagen board. So even though the Volkswagen had to sit out the organizing drive. UAW's tried their, tried at their plant in Tennessee twice and lost both. Yeah,
1: that's right. Um, And and that's what happens. And I think people talk about, oh, the South being, you know, hostile or something, but I think really it's more that these other areas, they got unionized first. um, A lot of times pre-Taft-Hartley when under the Wagner Act, um, unions had even more coercive power than they have now. Um, And, It's really a legacy of union incumbency in many instances. That's what's driving up.
0: uh, Organizing a union by default is one man, one vote once. Yeah, exactly. And there have
1: been studies that, um, you know, 94% of currently unionized workers have never uh, voted for the union that represents them. Um, You look at the big three. I mean, they were organized uh, almost a century ago, uh, you know. There There's no current worker at the UAW um, at the Big Three who have voted to be represented by the UAW. It's just that um, decertification, and this is something that we do um, or try to assist workers with, is incredibly difficult. And in a large unit where you're talking about thousands or tens of thousands of workers, it's fortunately Can you define
2: impossible. decertification? I'm pretty sure I know what you mean, but just define that.
1: Sure, yeah. So that's the process under the National Labor Relations Act, um, where just like there can be a certification election where workers vote in a secret ballot vote, um, whether or not to unionize, and if a majority vote for the union, then that's how unions get, that's one of the ways unions get their monopoly bargaining power, um, where they get to negotiate the one-size-fits-all contract. Um, There's similarly a mechanism under the National Labor Relations Act for basically the identical vote, but to remove an incumbent union. Um, that's something we deal with a lot. That system is so
0: rigged. It's, um, it's amazing how much. I mean, I mean imagine, imagine if, imagine if every time you wanted to change politicians, you had to re- you had to recall them. They didn't come up every X number of years, but you had to actually like go around get signatures. Right. Uh, yeah. And then they get and, to, and that was them. the only way to, to get rid yeah, of it. And a, they get to use your market. money that you're forced to pay
1: against you in that campaign. Um, I mean, that that's how the system works. And then there's all these other uh, barriers that the National Labor Relations Board has created that don't even exist in the Act, um, uh, the National Labor Relations Act, which is what they're supposed to be enforcing. Um, I mean, under the, the NLRA um, federal law that, that applies to most private sector workers, um, you, it, unless there's been a union election within the last year, a certification election within the last year, then you should be able to get petition for a new a decertification vote. Um, That means you get petitions from 30% of your coworkers, you give it to the National Labor Relations Board, and they hold a vote. But um, the National Labor Relations Board over the years has created all sorts of artificial, non-statutory barriers. So now, once a union has a contract, that contract can block you from a decertification vote for three years. Um, If a union gets in through card check, which is how they bypass um, the secret ballot election, that can block you for six months to a year and sometimes more. Um, then, you know, you can have um, a settlement of a unfair labor practice charge that the union filed against the employer, and that can be used to restrict the rights of the workers to be able to get a decertification vote. So you end up with oftentimes years before workers can get this vote, and then they often have a, like a 30-day window. Um, and if they miss that window, they're probably trapped for another three years or more.
2: So they write their monopoly so, power into sort of the the founding documents when somebody says, yeah, we want to we want to be unionized.
1: Right. And ironically, um, we see and we are assisting a lot of
0: Starbucks uh, workers who have been unionized um, and are now regretting it. Um, speaking speaking of unions that are way more radical politically yeah, than many people thought that they were. Um,
1: that, that's certainly
0: right. Um, and. But they, so they're now trying to decertify.
1: Um, and one of the things that they tell us is well, I was given this pitch. They said, hey, look, try out the union. If you don't like us, you can get rid of us in a year. Now, uh, in 20 or so stores across the country, including uh, I think 10 or 11 that National Right to Work Foundation attorneys are assisting workers with, um, they filed the petitions necessary to trigger a decertification vote. And the union is coming in and telling the, the National Labor Relations Board, you can't let them have a vote because. Uh, basically Starbucks isn't bargaining the way we want over Zoom and these types of things, um, things which obviously have nothing to do with these workers. It has nothing to do with their opposition to the union. And yet that, hey, try us out if you don't like us thing, that was part of their pitch on on getting in. And now they're finding out that unfortunately it doesn't work that way. Um, and they're probably many of them are probably trapped for, for a long, long time um, if history and and the way it works in most situations um, continues.
0: Well, uh, Patrick, is there anything else you'd like to promote before we let you go? Um, just if people want
1: to learn more, certainly come to the National Right to Work Foundation's website, nrtw.org. Um, you can learn about our cases there. If you're a worker who is wondering about their rights um, or wants to request free legal aid, then you can contact us through there as well. Um,
0: so we uh, invite everyone to check that out. All right. Well, thanks again to National Right to Work Foundation's Patrick Simmons for joining us. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week.